All right, Isaiah chapter 37, the first half there, verses 1 through 20. The topic, the Lord sends a spirit to influence King Sennacherib of Assyria to return home to Nineveh. The title of our message, Fearful Days Are Gone, He's A-Going Home. Sennacherib just wrote me a letter. Let's pray. Father, we love you, we do, and we thank you that you've drawn us to this place this morning. We want to learn more about your love for us, your grace, your mercy, your goodness. We want to be guided and directed in our walk, Lord, so that we would discover the good works that you have prepared beforehand for us to find. We want to be used by you, Lord, in our families and in our place of business and everywhere we are, really, Lord. We want you to open up doors of ministry. And we want to remember, Lord, the boldness that we have in the Holy Spirit to share the Lord. This morning, Lord, we've come before this text, and, and I have to believe, Lord, uh, because of your goodness, that you have planned for us from eternity past to be here, this particular group of people, every one, and this, these words, uh, this is what we need in order to really, really gr grasp who you are and what you're doing in our lives. And so, obviously, you have to go way beyond any words I could speak. We must have the Holy Spirit teach us here today, Lord. I pray that he would. And Lord, that you would do more than we could even imagine. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Bud Light took a beating over its decision to partner with trans influencer Dylan Mulvaney. It is one of the more dramatic examples of the phenomena that is called cancel culture. One definition of it explains... Cancel culture refers to the popular practice of withdrawing support for, thereby canceling, public figures and companies after they have done or said something considered objectionable or offensive. Cancel culture is generally discussed as being performed on social media in the form of group shaming. It may be recent on social media, but cancel culture got its start 6,000 years ago in the Garden of Eden. The devil came to our parents and he challenged God's word. He accusingly asked, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He answered his own accusation saying, God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you're going to be like God, knowing good from evil. Adam and Eve couldn't know the extent of their disobedience, but it was an attempt to cancel God and be like him. Instead, they became more like the devil. King Sennacherib of Assyria wrote a letter to King Hezekiah of Judah. The pagan king announced his intention to cancel the Jews like they had so many other nations and cities on their way. The Lord intervened in a big way. Hezekiah exercised simple faith in the Lord. We're going to call it conquer culture. And so I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, the devil wants to cancel you. Number two, the Lord wants to conquerize you. Number one, the devil wants to cancel you. Now, the devil, acknowledged as the God of this world, as if that isn't bad enough, we see evidence in the Bible that one-third of created angels threw in with him in his rebellion. And he is aided and abetted by, Ephesians chapter 6 says, principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, and the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, I'm not sure if those are jobs that fallen angels have, positions, or if these are additional spiritual creatures 
uh, you know, when you get into seeing scenes in heaven, like in the Revelation or the book of Daniel or Ezekiel, there's a lot of what we would consider weird creatures going on up there, right? Of course, they look down at us and say, what a weird guy Gene is. Previously in Isaiah, the Assyrian army marched to Jerusalem, destroying 46 uh, cities along the way. They surrounded the city with 185,000 of the most savage warriors ever fielded. A spokesman for the king of Assyria, titled the Rabshakeh, had parlayed with the representatives of King Hezekiah and Judy, uh, Judah, rather, Judy, Judy. Anyway, the Assyrian taunted, ridiculed, mocked, and in every way possible, belittled the Jews and any trust that they might put in their God. Believers in Jesus Christ, we are constantly besieged. Human wisdom in the form of religions and philosophies, politics, psychologies continue to announce the supposed cancellation of biblical Christianity. Everybody wants to say Christianity is dead. When I went to college about 100 years ago, my first moment at my first class at UC Riverside, the professor came in, Dr. Burned Magnus, He's wearing a Nehru jacket, so that should have thrown me right there, for those of you who... But anyway, his opening line was, Christianity is dead. And I thought, yeah, sure it is. I, it was to me. And so that, you know, that generally is the feeling that people have, that you know, we are being besieged by all of these other forms of things. So King Hezekiah's representatives, they returned and they reported to him what had occurred in this meeting. And so we begin, obviously, at verse 1. And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. The tearing of clothing is an outward representation of the tearing or rending of your heart. Sackcloth is a type of cloth in those days made of black goat's hair that was thick and rough, coarse. It would hurt you to wear it. Uh, you would suffer. And so it was an indication that you were mourning and in sorrow. I came across a 2022 article in which the author said, I believe that it is time to revive this ancient practice of wearing sackcloth. He went on to suggest a way that we can do it. One way to begin with wearing sackcloth is to cut out a small square of sackcloth and attach it to your clothing with a safety pin, much in the way that small ribbons have been worn at different times to raise awareness. Anybody raise black goats? then burlap will do. We can use burlap, how's that? And uh, at first I thought, oh, how cute that would be. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. As a law enforcement chaplain, I've many times sadly had to wear a black band around the badge or an armband or something like that because of the, the uh, death of a, an officer on duty or whatever. Uh, and there's, everybody has, every cause has a ribbon, right? And I'm not, you know, I, I can't remember the colors. And of course, if you're colorblind, then you're really in trouble. Uh, but there's every, every cause has a ribbon, and so maybe we need a ribbon of sackcloth. And so this author, he said, just cut a small square of uh, burlap and pin it to your shirt or blouse or whatever and, and just see where that goes. And I thought, you know what? That might be really awesome, to tell you the truth. Have people ask you, hey, what, what's with the burlap? You say, well, actually, it's sackcloth, and I am mourning the fact that the United States is going down the tubes and we need Jesus Christ or something like that, you know. Uh, and so anyway, I next week will have some burlap here because <laughs> people insist on giving me these giant coffee bags, right? 
And, and so I've got a couple of them. I thought, okay. First service, a guy came up and says, you can't believe this. I've been thinking about doing that. He says, but I've been looking for burlap and can't find any and stuff. And so now I'm thinking this could be our thing. You know, every ch lot of churches have things. We could be sackcloth chaplain. <laughs> Start this whole movement. There could be books and, and people, people could have home Bible studies based upon sackcloth. And well, I don't want to go that far. But anyway, uh, it's, an, it's a very interesting idea. And I know some of you are bold enough to do that. Uh, and so let me know how it goes. Uh, <laughs> I, I might do it. I just, I just, you know, I'm, I'm, sometimes I'm timid. I'm bold in the pulpit, timid at home. But anyway, so what do you think? You know, go for it. I'm, I'm laying that out for you. You can start a trend. I'll, we'll name it after you. Verse 2. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. For the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. They sought out God's prophet. Do you remember when U.S. presidents sought out Billy Graham? From Harry Truman all the way through Barack Obama, 12 sitting presidents spanning an unbelievable 67 years, he would warn of judgment to come if we failed to repent as a nation. He obviously had an anointing. It is somewhat troubling, uh, you know, people say, what about America, where are we headed? It's somewhat troubling to me that there was no one to take up his mantle, so to speak, no successor to Billy Graham. I'm not saying there had to be one or, you know, the, anything like that, but there wasn't. President Trump did have a spiritual advisor. It was Paula White. If you didn't know, she was a woman pastor who teaches the health and wealth false gospel. And so that's troubling that you go from Billy Graham, a simple man who always preached the gospel, and Billy Graham could come into a room or into a stadium and just say, Jesus loves you. Come on forward. And thousands of people would come down because the Lord was using him. Or you could have meetings with this person who's saying that just speak the word and you will be as healthy and wealthy as you want to be. It, we've, we've fallen in, in some kind of a different you know, position. So pray about that. If God did not intervene against Assyria, he, uh, Isaiah said it would, con or these guys said it would constitute a failed birth when they talked to Isaiah. More than an illustration, because you remember in the book of the Revelation, there's a terrifying scene, chapter 12, in which a great red dragon seeks to devour a child as it's being born. The child is born, however, and it's caught up immediately to heaven. The woman flees into the wilderness where she is kept safe for the next three and a half years despite the dragon's best efforts to murder her. And people say, oh, the revelation's filled with weird symbols. It is, but they tell you what the symbols mean. The Bible identifies the dragon as Satan. The woman is the nation of Israel who he's persecuted throughout history. Her child is Jesus, obviously, and the three and a half years are the last half of the Great Tribulation. Satan will try one more time to exterminate every Jew God will preserve his remnant. When that time ends and Jesus returns to earth, all Israel who survived the tribulation will be saved. If the 8th century Jews fell to Assyria and they were exterminated by the king of Assyria, the future birth depicted in the Revelation would be in jeopardy or not happen at all. And so all of these moments in history are critical for the gospel. 
Verse 4, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Don't make too much of Hezekiah identifying the Lord as your God to Isaiah. He was saved. Your God acknowledges the truth that while Isaiah was being faithful through the reign of four different kings uh, for decades, the Jews were stiff-necked idol worshipers, and they really weren't in a close relationship with the Lord. Again, God always acts to spare a remnant of Jews. National ethnic Israel is central to human history and a future kingdom of God on the earth. Verse 5, so the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and they said to him, thus you shall say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Do not fear, fear not, do not be afraid. These occur a lot in the Bible. It ought to become easier and easier for us to believe them as time goes on. Everyone knows the famous presidential encouragement, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Is that even true? It sounds like something the Sphinx would say in the movie Mystery Men. It's, it's, it's not true. It might be encouraging, but it's not true. Jesus gave us the bottom line on fear when he said, Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. You have nothing to fear but God if you die without the knowledge of his son, without salvation, because you have no other address other than the lake of fire. And really, if you're not a Christian, you should lose all of your bodily functions when people talk about hell. You should be terrified that in a moment you could be in eternity awaiting hell. Uh, and it's, it's real. Hell is a real place. Eternity is a long time. The dead and uh, wicked dead will be raised in a body that can be tormented. Uh, and so, uh, I, you know, I remember, if you're saved later in life, you might remember that moment when you understood the weight of sin, when you realized that you were going to die in your sins and die forever to the second death. And it's, it, it's terrifying. Uh, but... Praise the Lord, the gospel was being preached and you could come to Christ. And so if you're like that today, if you, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you can't honestly 100% say, if I died right now, if I, if I dropped dead from a heart attack, I know I'd be in heaven, uh, then you need to call out to the Lord. The Holy Spirit is here. He's working on your heart. Come to Christ. Verse 7, surely I will send a spirit upon him and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will call him to fall by the sword in his own land. So he's talking to Shirley, and he says, get it. I've been waiting a while for that one to, for, to fit in. So uh, anyway, he hears a rumor. Now, God sends a spirit. This sends people into tizzies. First of all, the spirit did not possess him. It influenced him. And second, this is a wartime scenario, secret operation that the Lord greenlit. He said, hey, I have a strategy. Let's get Sennacherib to go back to Nineveh. And that will, you know, accomplish some of our purposes and then we can move forward. How many times have you seen or, uh, a movie or a documentary about some wartime secret mission that tricked the enemy? 
There's one out now, it's called Operation Mincemeat. I didn't believe it was real, but it was. It was depicting the successful British World War II deception operation disguising the 1943 Allied invasion of Sicily. And so what's happening here is that there's a, you know, whether God comes up to it, this strategy himself, or he checks with his divine counsel, we don't want to get into that, but that's a possibility, and says, hey, what do we want to do about, you know, this? And they say, I'll, I'll be a spirit. I'll, let's send a spirit down there to influence, you know, Sennacherib, and, and he'll leave, and it'll weaken their position, and then in Nineveh, he's going to be killed. We'll see that at the end of next week's study, Lord willing. So uh, this isn't anything weird. Verse 8, then the Rabshakeh returned home and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he heard that he had departed from Lashish. And the king heard concerning Terhaka, the king of Ethiopia, he has come out to make war with you. So when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look! You've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by utterly destroying them. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed, Gozan and Haran and Rezpah and the people of Eden who were in Talasser? Where's the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, and the king of the city of Sephaviam, Hena and Iva? Sennacherib's return to Nineveh was a sign that Judah, to Judah rather that God's prophecy of Jerusalem's safety was trustworthy. I'm going to bet most of us have received a letter that troubled us deeply. Maybe it was a notice of eviction or foreclosure. Maybe it was a proverbial pink slip in your paycheck informing you that your employment was terminated. Maybe you were served with divorce papers. Maybe it was your medical test results confirming the terminal diagnosis. Have you ever used the designation in care of when you sent a letter? It means you're sending the letter or the package to an addressee that is accepting it for someone else. People often use the abbreviation CO, care of. These types of letters that I listed and this letter to Hezekiah they are letters that are addressed to Jesus, care of his followers. Uh, because the Lord says, cast your care upon me because I care for you. And so Hezekiah gets this letter. He puts on his best sackcloth. And he goes to the temple of the Lord. And he says, Lord, I'm, I want you to see. It says, I, I'm going to spread this out before you so you can see it. Because this letter is for you. It's about us and what they want to do to us, but they only want to do these things to us because of you. And that's true today. People hate you if they hate you and persecute you for God's sake because they hate Jesus Christ. They hate to be told that they're sinners in need of salvation. And they hate you because they hate him and they can't really get to him, but they can get to you. The Lord is going to conquerize you in verses 14 through 20. Uh, but first, let's read verse 36 just because I love it. And it tells us what's going to happen. Then the angel of the Lord went out and he killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there they were, the corpses, all dead. That's some kind of successful conquer culture, right? That's conquer culture at its best. If you are saved in Christ, the Apostle Paul proclaimed, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
Wow, Gene the Conqueror, right? I'm a conqueror, you're a conqueror, we're all conquerors. What is it that we conquer? What are the all things? What's the catch? Paul listed tribulation and distress, persecution and famine, nakedness, peril, sword. He said, for God's sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for slaughter. Wow. How do we conquer those things? Not by avoidance. We don't conquer by avoidance. We conquer by acceptance. Paul wrote about a severe trial in his own life, calling it a thorn in his flesh. When God told Paul it was his will for him to have that thorn, Paul enjoyed the Lord's enabling to have joy and testify of his everlasting love. And that's why I coined this word, we are conquerized, because we don't conquer anything. I can't conquer the disease in my life, but I can rejoice in it and I can glory in it because of Jesus Christ. And through it and other things, he conquerizes me so that I can be used of him as his conqueror, as his vessel. Take the case of the first church age martyr, Stephen the deacon. As rocks pelted his body, it says he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. We always think of stuff like this. Could I do that? You know, if I was being stoned to death, could I, in a loud voice, say, please forgive them? Or would I say, Lord, remember this and just kill them all? <laughs> just, yeah, right now, Lord, I'm in the Old Testament. And, and I did, you know, I'll break their teeth. Uh, do whatever you have to do. Stephen acted like a believer. We look at Stephen and say, well, of course that's what you say, Right? You don't, you know, you don't start getting weird. I mean, obviously that's what happens because the Lord has conquered you and you're like, hey, you know, you guys are killing me. And man, what a blessing this is because in a, in a moment here, I'm going to take my last breath and I'm going to see, well, actually he already saw Jesus because he had a special vision of him, you know, earlier because he was going to be stoned. And then he says, I'm going to be with Jesus. So, uh, you know, go for it. He acted like a believer. He had the Holy Spirit's permanent indwelling, and that's why he could rise to that occasion. And we do too, and we'll talk more about that in just a minute. First, verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. He went to the Lord and said, Lord, this is for you. I mentioned that he put on his best sackcloth. You know, have you ever been to a church where you feel like you you're underdressed and people are looking at you like you're, you know, you're not wearing your Sunday best or the, you, know, you bring your best for God and all of that kind of thing. We have uh, kind of a Sunday worst, you know, but no, that's not true. Come as you are. There's nothing wrong with that. You can wear a, you know, the, what was the old country, little country church? Some long hair, short hair, some coats and ties. We're all here to praise the Lord. Uh, but, you know, if you ever go to a situation where people say, hey, you need to come, you need to dress more like your Sunday best, dress for God, come back the next week in burlap. Uh, <laughs> make some burlap pants and, and say, hey, you know what? I took your advice. I said, well, how, how did people dress when they went to the house of the Lord? And, man, a lot of these Old Testament guys especially wore burlap because they needed you know, repentance to happen. And this church certainly does that, you know, and stuff. So anyway, uh, just a thought. I'm always just trying to help you in your walk in those ways. 
Verse 15, then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Hezekiah reminds us that God dwelt with his nation, his glory that is, in the holy of holies of the temple. The Ark of the Covenant was there with a lid on it called the mercy seat. Cherubim were carved on it, uh, looking both ways at each end, and their wings touched in the center. I go home and watch the original Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you'll see it. <laughs> Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. King Hezekiah reinforces the truth that this was really against God. It was against the living God that they were rebelling. You know, I've mentioned this before. Assyria was the hand of God to judge these pagan nations and to judge his own people, but they went too far. They got it in their head that they were, you know, their own, uh, well, they, they became proud uh, rather than humble to be used of God. And so God says, hey, now I'm going to have to judge you. And so, uh, you know, they say, oh, we, we've destroyed everybody's gods. <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen here pretty soon. And so, again, people who persecute Christians, they're persecuting Jesus. He's not on earth right now, and you are. Every enemy in a movie worth his salt or her salt at some point jeopardizes the people that the hero loves. You are so loved of the Lord that the devil trains his weapons on you. You are the people that the Lord loves. And the devil says, look what I'm going to do to Job. You know, I know you love him. I am going to I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm going to do this to Job. And the Lord says, Job doesn't care about those things. He cares about me. And, you know, so go ahead, go this far, and you know the story. And, you know, some of you know, you're thinking, oh, is, that, is that really cool that God did that? Sure, yeah, absolutely. You know why? Because life is fleeting. It's passing away. And, uh, you know, the Lord loves us, and, and he says to Satan, after the first chapter and at the book, he says, hey, look, what do you think about my servant Job now? Look at how he hung in there. You, you can't deceive him. You can't knock him down. He loves me. I love him. And it's, it's that way with us too. So something bad happens to you, something in the bad category, guess what? This is a fallen world. It's not the world that God created. Could he heal everybody? Could everybody? Yeah, sure, he could, and he will in the millennium. How many thousands or even millions of people will be lost for eternity if the Lord comes right now? Now, we want him to come right now, and he can come right now. We believe in the imminent return of Christ. But the, the mathematical realities are, if the Lord tarries another year, how many millions of people are going to come to Christ? And another two years, another three years. Uh, and, now, at some point, God says, this is the plan, and this is the time. I'm coming for my church, and then all of this is going to unfold. That is going to happen. But in the meantime, we're about his business in a fallen world. You're going to get sick. You're going to die. Terrible things are going to happen to you. Also, blessed things are going to happen to you. You're going to find yourself in a family of believers. There are people going to rally around you. Uh, you know, you, do you really want to get sick and die with, with no believers around you, not believing in Jesus? No. That's horrible. People with no hope. 
not knowing where they're going and when they're going to get there. I mean, so even when you're being tried and, and in the worst trials of your life, the Lord is with you saying, look, look at these people I've given you. I've given you, your family abandoned you. I've given you brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and uncles and aunts. And, you know, they're all around you in the body of Christ. You know, and, and, you know, I was reading a guy the other day who was saying, no, I don't go to church anymore. I don't need to go to church. Man, what a loser. Not that he is a loser, but think of what he loses out on. How much real fellowship can you have at Starbucks? I'm serious, right? Or on the golf course or doing whatever you do on Sunday morning that is in church. When you could be meeting people that the Lord loves, who he died for, who want to minister to you and who you want to minister to. What a selfish thing to say, I'm not going to church anymore. Are churches weird? Sure. Absolutely. Is our church weird? I'm here. <laughs> Don't think too long about me being here. I mean, just, you know, just, I mean, just say, Lord, I'm so thankful that you speak to us while Gene is talking. I just, you know, I just, because he is a clown. But anyway, uh, so, you know, but it's selfish. I'm not going to use my gifts. I'm going to stay home. Uh, and, and so whoever I could have ministered to, is going to go without that ministry. Hopefully, obviously, the Lord will raise somebody else up. But you see the point. And so um, you are beloved of the Lord no matter what you're going through. And I think you can see his love if you just open your eyes to it. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste, verse 18, to all the nations in their lands. They have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. The Assyrians made it a point to enter the temple or holy place of their enemies and burn their idols, uh, which represented the gods of those cultures they had canceled. Verse 20, Now therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, and all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. History is headed towards a time described this way by a mighty angel in the book of the Revelation. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And everyone said, Amen. Hallelujah. In the future kingdom and eternity, there are going to be nations. In the Revelation, looking at eternity, chapter 21, verse 4, we read about the nations of those who are saved. And in 22, verse 2, in eternity, we read, in the middle of the street and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so, I don't know if we don't usually think about this, we're not told a lot about eternity future, but we are told that there will exist different nations. We're not all going to be one big conglomeration of people that are, you know, there will be not division, but there will be a diversity. Uh, you know, and, and so I'm, I'm kind of happy that Italy will survive, you know. <laughs> Looking forward to being a barista. But anyway, lots of things are going to be going on. You know, people that say, oh, I don't want to sit on a cloud with a harp. Or, I, or sometimes we, we think of, because we think of and describe heaven as the supernatural or another realm, we have a tendency to think of it as ether or spirit or something. Jesus rose in what kind of body? physical body, a material body. We're going to rise in a physical material body. There's going to be a physical material earth. There's going to be nations and peoples and we're going to have work to do. 
Uh, it'll be the way that God intended it. It's not going to be a renewal of Eden either, by the way. It's going to be much greater than Eden. It's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. A restored earth where God gives us plenty to do. How are we conquerized? On the day of Pentecost, after Jesus rose from the dead, he sent the church a promised gift. He sent them the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. It's one of the promises in the new covenant God made with the nation of Israel. Moses, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they all mention this new covenant. Ezekiel says it promises a new heart, a new spirit, and the permanent indwelling of the spirit. Now, listen, this is simple. If the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit was a future promise to Israel, Israel, you're going to get this later on after the kingdom is established, then Israelites in the Old Testament did not have this experience of the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God's not going to say, you know, just the way you are now is just the way you're going to be then, I promise you. No, he says, no, you, it's going to be, you can't wait to see what I'm going to do with you in the future. You're going to have a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. And I'm going to let the Holy Spirit indwell you permanently. When Israel's leaders rejected their Messiah, the new covenant promised to them were put on hold. Meantime, the church has begun to partake of the promises. Now, we do not supplant or supersede or replace Israel. Israel God, or excuse me, the church is not the new Israel. Israel's on hold while God is building his church. And then what's going to happen? Rapture, resurrection, great tribulation, which is called the time of Jacob's trouble, when God is going to turn his attention again to the nation of Israel. And at the end of that period of time, all surviving Jews will be saved. And God will have fulfilled all of his promises to his people. And then you can go on and read about what happens in eternity. There's an episode in the book of Acts, fascinating, in which the Apostle Paul encounters some disciples of John the Baptist. He can sense that something is not quite right about them. This happens sometimes. I've told you many times that sometimes when I'm doing pre-marriage counseling, and you know, it's usually like a gal from our church, and then she has a boyfriend or vice versa that we don't know. And you can start questioning them, and you can... Sadly, you can tell right away they're not born again. I mean, you say, hey, tell me about coming to Christ, for example. You say, well, uh, I was baptized when I was an infant, and we kind of got away from church after that. I'm like, the fiancé is like, oh, isn't this so wonderful? Yeah, no, it's not. But anyway, and so you can tell. Well, Paul said, hey, there's something wrong with these guys. So he issues a challenge question. I think it might be a challenge question he used all the time because of this transition. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so these guys believed, just like Old Testament saints believed, just like Abraham, he believed God and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. They were saved, but they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. He, there was no permanent indwelling of the Spirit. And so Paul prayed for them, and, and the Lord gave him the Spirit. And they went, or them, rather, and they went on. And so again, uh, in the future, people say, oh, well, how are people going to get saved in the tribulation if the Holy Spirit, you know, is, you know, is removed with the church? Well, same way they got saved in the Old Testament. He still has a ministry to people, and they will believe God, and it will be accounted unto them as to righteousness. And so it's not, it's not uh, really a problem. 
Salvation is always the same. Right? You, you have, I, you know, as a younger Christian, before I got much teaching, I said, oh, people in the Old Testament were saved by keeping the law. And people in the New Testament were saved by Jesus. That's not true. No one could keep the law in the Old Testament anyway. People are always saved the same way they believe God and it is accounted unto them. It is credited to them as righteousness. They're not righteous, but God says, I see you now as righteous because you believe my son. And so I'll give you his righteousness. I'll take your sin upon him and we've got it. And so that's what's going on here. Why is all this important? It's not simply important, it's vital. When you and I believed, we received God the Holy Spirit's indwelling permanently. And that is why we are enabled and empowered to obey God. We don't do it perfectly, but we, we need to always say to ourselves, as I'm reading God's word, if this is what God word, God's word says to do, I can do it. I don't even not need to know how to do it in the sense of finding the 10 steps or the 15 steps or the 30 days or anything like that. I need to do it. I, I love marriage. Husband, love your wife the way Christ loved the church. If you're not doing that, then maybe you don't know how much Christ loved the church. Maybe God to you is still a tyrant. Maybe he, you know, maybe you think that he's forcing you to do works of righteousness or something like that. You're, what you need to do is study Jesus' love for his church. And then, guess what? You will treat your, life that, your wife that way. And, and so, you know, it, but you can, you can do whatever God has called you to do because the Spirit indwells. I mentioned Stephen. The Bible says that he had the face of an angel as he was being persecuted and martyred. I can't make angel face when I want to. Right? I mean, it's goofy face or something, right? This guy was being martyred and they looked at him and said, he looks like an angel. That's because God was doing a work through him. God had conquerized him and he belonged to the Lord. And he said, Lord, take me. I mean, I've been serving tables here. I'm a deacon. I'm happy to do that. But if you want to kill me and take me to heaven, I, I kind of like the idea of always being called the first martyr of the Christian age. You know, that, that uh, appeals to me. And, and so let's do it. Uh, and so uh, he, now, he had the Holy Spirit in the same measure that you do. Because the Holy Spirit is not a force, he's a person, right? And so if he were just a force, you might have, you know, nine volts going for you. And you look, and Paul was like a 24-volt guy. You know, I always want to cheap out on the lawn equipment and get the, you know, the 18-volt the stuff where the blower goes, and well, you know, it just doesn't move leaves unless they're completely dry. And then you're like, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm going with 100 volt, you know, and stuff. And, and so the Holy Spirit's not like that. He's a person. And so you either have him or you don't, and you do have him as a Christian. And I want you to think about this. At the time of his martyrdom, Stephen was four years old in the Lord. Four years old, because that's what was going on. He didn't have decades to walk with the Lord. Paul wasn't a Christian yet. He was there holding, Stephen's, uh, holding the coats as the different men Stone Stephen, but four-year-old believer who was equipped exactly like I and you are. Don't be discouraged. Even Paul said he had not attained, but he was pressing forward. 
R.A. Torrey wrote and he said, if we think of the Holy Spirit only as an impersonal power or influence, then our thought will constantly be, how can I get hold of and use the Holy Spirit? But if we think of him in the biblical way as a divine person, infinitely wise, infinitely holy, infinitely tender, then our thought will constantly be, how can the Holy Spirit get hold of and use me? Thank you.